right. Welcome, welcome. To me, that's a very important part of the service. Amen. We want to be family, and you have to work at that. Not that it's that hard, but you have to give, you have to give opportunity for that. We said we want to know more than the backside of the person's head we're sitting behind. Amen. All right. Well, we are honored. Uh, I'm, I'm going to let you be seated. I know you've been maybe standing a bit to uh, have several. Man, we got the apostles and the prophets, and we got them. We're so honored to have Pastor John Lewis and his lovely wife, Lavanya, uh, Lavanya in the service. And uh, I tell you, he shocked me back there. I, he was the last person I expected to see. So I guess he just, you just told him at Grace Life Church of Valdosta, I'm taking a break today. Uh, but he is the senior pastor. He is my spiritual son and has been uh, part of our church, our network for many many years and has preached uh, from this pulpit. And Pastor Lewis, uh, just come say hi. Uh, some of the people probably hadn't even seen you. It's been so long. And uh, you can leave those shoes with me after service. Well, amen. Praise God. Amen. I just bring greetings with Grace Life Church here in Valdosta. Amen. We are so part, so happy to be a part of this network. Apostle Dale has been my spiritual father, amen, for many, many years. And uh, amen. I just wanted to take a break, ask some of the church, amen, that would come down. We have some of them as present here as well. Amen. Just to get a break, amen. This is a special time of year. And we want to come and just celebrate with you guys. Just say, amen. We're a family. Amen. We're in close proximity of each other. And I'm telling you, amen. That's nothing like knowing God from a real perspective. Amen. Praise God. So I'm excited to be here. Amen. Praise God. Because I'm telling you, amen, God is all that and more. And when you understand the grace of God, amen, praise God. How many know you on the winning side? Amen. Praise God. There's nothing that can stop us because we know who we are. So I say to you this morning, amen, praise God. Let's just let go and have let God do what he's going to do. I'm excited. I'm looking for blessings and healing. So come on and let's give God one more praise. It's good to be here, family. Amen. I love you, Pastor John. I love you. I appreciate you. Yes, sir. Amen. And, uh, we are so glad to have our resident apostle Callaway, and uh, that means he's not preaching off today. And I'm glad to have my son Todd. Todd, stand up and just wave at him. Todd Johnson, and uh, some of you may not know Todd's a pastor as well. Uh, he pastored in Middle Georgia, and I preached for him uh, many years ago. But we've known each other for over ten years now. And he is a uh, Lowndes County in now. And uh, Atlanta police officer in the Atlanta vicinity in that area. Anything, you know, within 100 miles around Atlanta is Atlanta, right? And uh, so how many years you've been in law enforcement? 27 years. And uh, so he is my bodyguard. He sits right behind me. <laughs> but we're so uh, glad, Todd, you're here in Val Austin now and closer. And, and part of, uh, he's always been part of this ministry and church, but. Glad to have you right here. So we love you, buddy. And I love all you guys, man. Thank you for being here. What a great week we've had with the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, and I hope that, uh, you know, this year was a little bit different in how that we uh, kept it. We went in and put up our, our signs, you know, that shows the seven feasts. And, and just for sake of maybe someone that's uh, here that know what I'm talking about, we're not talking about eating food, but the, the word feast means um, appointed time. And God has a calendar, and he's always worked off of it. And today is actually the culmination of the, the uh, seventh feast, the last feast. And the reason these things are extremely important is because everything that God has done on his redemptive calendar, he has done in congruence and in harmony with those appointed times. Uh, so I hope, you, you know, and that's why there is that temporary booth back there, and uh, Andy and Katrina, Again, we thank you for all the hard work and cutting the palm branches so we could wave the palm branches and uh, bless the Lord. You know, some churches, they have what they call Palm Sunday, but that's just, that's not in the Bible. You know what I'm saying? Uh, what they're doing is they're celebrating what they call, some commentators call the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. But it was, uh, was going to end in triumph, 
but, but they had their calendar wrong, and they were ignorant of what was going on and the timing of God's events. But I so appreciate uh, Phil and Cleveland for taking those ram's horns, those shofars this week. And, uh, and that is something that, that uh, they're very difficult. I used to try to, to, to blow one, and it's just, it, all I did is spit in it. So I give that up. But I so appreciate them doing that. And, and it is significant. Uh, it is those ram's horns. They're called shofar in the Hebrew. And, um, but they are the sound, when, that, when those Israelites would hear that ram's horn, they, would, they only blew it for two reasons, to announce a appointed time or to go to war. And you may remember that uh, when the children of Israel crossed in to their promised land, the first city that they encountered was Jericho with great walls. The walls of Jericho were so wide uh, that you could race uh, horses and chariots on top of the wall and not have any fear of them running off. That's how wide those walls were. And uh, it was just an unprecedented fortress. And yet God told his people uh, that, uh, you know, to, if, if it, they would obey what their uh, leader Joshua told them, those walls would come down. And they, had, they would not be uh, fearful of those people. And, of course, he had told them to go in and, and, uh, and conquer that land, and he would go before them, and he would be with them like God always is. And, of course, uh, I, I've showed you that once God uh, created man, God from that point forward refused to be God apart from man. In other words, we get to participate with the things that God's going to do. And, in fact, God will not act without our participation. And so even in the bringing of the walls, do you think that God needed man's uh, participation to bring the Jericho walls down? I mean, of course not. God could have just said, walls go down, that had been the end of it. But they, they marched around. He told them, I want you to march around it one time a day for six days. And then he said, on the seventh day, I want you to march around it how many times? Seven times. Seven plus six is what? Thirteen is not an unlucky number except for the devil. Some people don't want to sit on seat 13. They don't want to stay in a hotel if it's got a lot of hotels fake you out and change the number from, you know, 11, 12, and then they skip 13, and, and they call it 14, but we know where you're really staying. You're still on the 13th floor. <laughs> Just kidding. You, that's real. I'm not making that up. Um, and on, on that, they walked around seven times, and he told them to blow the trumpets, and the trumpets that they blew was the shofar. And why would God do that? Because God is not going to act independently of us. Uh, the earth he has given to the sons of men. The heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he gave to men. And that's why the earth is in the mess that it's in. Because then we turned around and gave it through Adam to the enemy. But then our last Adam, Jesus, came and rescued us from our dilemma. Amen? And so, you know, the biggest thing to me, you know, on this eighth day... Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is a time, you know, because all these feasts, and I, I guess if I'm going to talk about it, I, I'm not going to talk about it long, but, but of course, you know, those seven t appointed times, if you ever want to read them chronologically, you go to the book of Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, and that is the only place in the Bible you'll find them all seven listed and in chronological order. And God said that you are to announce them and you, to, you are to keep them and, and you are to call the people together for a sacred, solemn assembly. And, uh, and so on the Feast of Passover, what happened? That was the first one. That's the beginning of their year. And Jesus, our Passover lamb, was crucified. And then the second feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. No, uh, no leaven means no sin. Jesus had no sin. He was placed in the tomb. Uh, he, he would not see corruption because on the Feast of First Fruit, which is the third one, uh, the Apostle Paul said, Jesus has become the first fruits. A resurrection, and Jesus was uh, uh, resurrected on that feast of first fruits. Do you think that was accident, or do you think maybe God's got a plan? And then the next feast in Leviticus is the Feast of Weeks. Uh, it's not inappropriate to call it the Feast of Pentecost, and the word Pentecost means fifty. It just simply means the word fifty. And the reason it means fifty, God told them after the Feast of First Fruits, they are to count seven weeks. Uh, and then on the following day, it is to be the Feast of Weeks. 
And so seven times seven is, and to add one to it is 50. So uh, on that day when Jesus was uh, resurrected, of course, he was seen for 40 days and 40 nights by hundreds and thousands of people. He made many appearances, and he was seen by his disciples, and he was seen by people. And after 40 days of being uh, visibly present uh, with uh, us, he went to the Mount of Olives, and there he, was, uh, he ascended into the heavens. And they actually uh, saw that into the clouds, and uh, angels were in uh, attendance. And uh, those angels actually saw the disciples, even after Jesus was no longer visible. They said, why do you stand here gazing? Uh, for this same Jesus that you have seen leave shall come again in like manner and receive you unto himself. And then he had, Jesus had told them to go into Jerusalem and wait there until they be endued with power. Acts 1 and 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall, receive, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit. That word power there is the Greek word dunamis, dynamite. Um, you know, uh, that power of the Spirit, that power to give us power to, to live this life that God has given us. And so they went there and they were in the upper room for 10 days. I told you me being raised in kind of a, in a, in a Pentecostal culture, uh, we was told that they were fasting and praying and pleading and begging God you know, send the spirit, which was stupid and unbiblical. Uh, I told you, I told you the other night that they could have been playing dominoes or playing blackjack. Uh, but on the on the feast on that fiftieth day, God had already predetermined uh, that He, in congruence with that feast, would send the Holy Spirit, who would not only not only be with you, but Jesus said, "Shall be in you." Uh, that's why Jesus said, "It is to your advantage that I go away." And uh, for the Holy Spirit will be with you and in you. Uh, and so that happened in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost, when the Feast of Weeks had fully come, he said, I heard the sound as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled all the house where they were assembled. And he said, cloven tongues of fire appeared upon each of them, and they began to, to praise and magnify God. And even people that did not know, because at each of these feasts, there were three mandated feasts, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost or Weeks, and the Tabernacles, where if you were a Jew and you were of the age of 20 or older, you were mandated by the law that you had to make your pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to keep uh, that feast. And so the, the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding uh, hills would have been filled with a couple of million or three million possibly people. Uh, so it was very crowded. Uh, so uh, that's why there were people from every language and all there. And when those uh, apostles and those 120 in the upper room poured downstairs, uh, they heard them speak in their own language. And that was that gift of of tongues that they could hear and understand and know what was being said and could give honor and praise and glory uh, to the Messiah that had come and had become that sacrificial lamb. And then, of course, that happened. So all of those feasts, those first four, are totally fulfilled. And so then all we're waiting on now is the next one, which is the Feast of Trumpets. And when that one occurs, uh, the shofar will be blown again. Because the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. And with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God shall sound. And those that are alive shall be caught up to meet him in the air. The dead shall rise and forever shall we be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. That's what, that's what it says. And then after that, then God will deal with the remaining people on this earth during atonement. And it don't mean that he's going to get them. You just don't know how good he is. But he's going to handle it. You don't need to worry about it. You just leave with the first load like I'm leaving with. And, and all that other ain't none of your business. And you let Papa be Papa and let him deal with it. Uh, you, none of us have any clue, really, how great and good that God really is and how much he loves people. And, um, and, and, and if I really told you, uh, and, and I'm, I'm going to keep telling you, but it would blow your mind uh, how good God is. And it's in the Bible. Uh, death is not your savior. And, and, and Paul said, death will not stop God from loving his creation. Uh, we've grown up in a church where I thought death is the end of it. That's what they told me. That's what the preacher said. But that's not what the Bible says. 
What are you saying? I'm just saying what it says in Romans 8, in the last verse. It said, nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Paul said, neither life nor death, nor any created thing, nothing that's in this earth and outside this earth and in this universe. He named them. That you can read that list and you tell me what's missing on that list. And in fact, God cares for people and death will not. Jesus conquered death when he came. What do you think? He took, he conquered death. Death is not, he don't butt up against death and that's the end of it. He don't butt up against death and say, well, I give up. So y'all getting quiet now because you've been steeped in religion. And uh, who wouldn't want God to just keep on being God and do what he's going to do? Just because some preacher got up and told you when they dead, this dead, they don't know what they're talking about. They just need to read the book they claim to preach out of. I tell you, Jesus, uh, Jesus loved people that had died. And so the Bible says in the New Testament that he went and preached to those that had died. Does it say that? Does it say he went and preached to those that were dead? It sure does. He preached to them. And he led those that was captive into liberty and freedom. You think they heard Jesus preach and go, nah, I just want to stay here. And by the way, they wasn't burning in no fire. That wasn't where they were. They were dead. They were in Sheol, the grave. We got so many myths that we have been taught in our minds. It's a wonder we can even, if people really listen to the God that, that I grew up being described about, no wonder we have atheists. For I too now am an atheist when it comes to the God that they told me about because I do not believe in that God. I believe in one that is much greater, much lovelier, much more than I ever imagined. While they were singing today, I just lifted my eyes and I said, God, you are more than I ever thought you were. I do not have the words to describe how great you are. And he went and Jesus went and preached to those that were dead. Now you may come up with all you little religious stuff and say, well, that was a one-shot deal. Yeah, you ain't got no verse for that either. What you gonna do about somebody that grows up in the jungles of the Amazon and they never heard the name of Jesus and lived and died. You think God just going to say, well, the hell with them. That's what you're saying. That's not who God is. God loves his kids. And God said from one blood, he has made all men and that they are his children. Well, I thought that he said in John eight, that some of them was the, you know, the child of the, they're, they're, you know, their daddy was the devil. He's talking about in what they believe in. They're listening to the wrong voice. But that didn't mean he didn't love the Pharisees. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Paul, the apostle, was a Pharisee. God, is an, God includes everybody, even when religion tries to keep them out. So that's just thoughts. has nothing to do with what I'm really, I guess, supposed to say today, but I just would pray that you would just open your mind and have hope that God is a bigger God. If you really do believe that every knee is going to bow, as Ken quoted, and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord, how do you see that happening? Do you see God with, with uh, angels with swords forcing the sinners to bow and say those words? Is that, is that how you picture it? Have you ever thought of that? You think God's going to just shove people down and put a sword to their head and make them confess that he is Lord? But it says every knee's going to bow, right? And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. These are just little things to think about, sometimes to keep you up at night. If God's going to start making people do stuff, why don't he make them do it when it counts? If you say it don't count later. But all that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10. God ain't never made nobody confess that he is Lord. And if anybody ever confesses that he is Lord, it's coming from a heart that has been illuminated and awakened to the truth and the reality of who this God is. God's a bigger God than we ever imagined than he was. And the Holy Spirit has a lot of work still to do on all of us, including the one holding the microphone this morning.
to expand us and deliver us of our religiosity and bring us into a relationship with the God. And that's the biggest deal of all. See, I, uh, that, that's the thing that, was, that, that I was so um, kept from is the God himself. And, and I pray that, that during this feast that, that you see this God, and, and I've talked about it in detail when I spoke on the Trinity, but our God, right out of the gate, is a triune God, and, and that is extremely important. God is three, yet he is one. And you don't hear a lot of talking about it because it seems on one hand to be so complicated that no one can understand it, but yet we are confronted with it right out of the gate, so to speak, in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. The reason it's so important, and I want you to think about this, if God is alone, if he is singular, if God is just one, if he is alone in his isolation, if, if he has ever been that at any time, I'm talking before Adam, before he created Adam, then, then if he is alone and he has ever been alone, then there is no other person, there is no other thing for him to love until he creates someone. So that makes love not an aspect of his character and an essence of who he is. It makes love something that he does once he's created something to love. Or if he is in his isolation and he loves himself because there is nothing else outside of him to love, then he is a narcissist. We call that narcissism. And he loves himself, which makes you and I insignificant because he loves himself more than he loves anything else. Uh, God, the Bible said, is... Love. It doesn't say God is capable of loving. It didn't says it doesn't say God has love. It said God is. His essence of who He is is love. God loves because He can do nothing else but love. And 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 so we we are confronted with with a triune God, three. And so we even see this. In, in Genesis 1, I've told you this, that the word, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God there, translated in your English Bible, is the Hebrew Elohim. Elohim, I'm, if you really say it right, you would get spit on the microphone. <laughs> Elohim, you know, Elohim. So, but it is plural. Just for your enlightenment, it is a noun. For its tense in the Hebrew language, it is masculine, and it is plural. And therefore, the pronouns are plural in chapter 1. And so God says in Genesis 1 and 27, uh, 126 rather, then God said, Elohim, God's said, let us, everybody say us. Us is more than one, right? If it's just God, why don't he say let me? But he said, let us make man in our, our image and according to our likeness. How many sees more than one here? Because it can't be our if it's just one. God is not singular. So God says, let us make man let, in our likeness and in our image. And then in verse 27, we miss these little nuances. He says, so God, Elohim, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, 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 male and female, he created them. Now we're getting confused here because we got him, and God's just going to make one person called Adam, but he's already calling them them. Him has become them. When God made Adam, he only made one, but he actually made two. And when God got ready for Eve to make her appearance, he reached inside of Adam and he pulled out Eve, for she was taken out of man, therefore she was named woe man. 
That's what it says. And I thought he took a rib. Think about ribs when you go hunt something to eat at church. But God opened up his side and he reached in and he pulled out Eve. When, when the last Adam hung on the cross, he had already died. He gave up the body, his spirit, he commended to the Lord. And the Roman soldier, just to be sure he was dead, thrust his sword into his side. And out of his side came blood and water. And God reached in Adam and pulled out his bride, his, bride, his wife, the church. When a baby's born, blood and water comes. And there was a birthing. Uh, so we, we see this, this plurality uh, in the, in, right from the beginning. And God created him, male and female, he created them. And God is saying all this before Eve is even here. And then you only have to go into chapter 2. Of course, man is the one that divided in chapters, and that made it a lot quicker for us to be able to find where we're talking about, and we're thankful. But as soon as we roll into chapter 2, we're introduced not just to Elohim, but now it begins using a new phrase that says, Lord God. Instead of, we've got the word Lord now appearing, and Lord is Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh Adonai, Yahweh. And it is an unpronounceable name in the Hebrew. And the letters are written in such a way that you cannot uh, 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 even say it, and, and they don't want to say it because they, God's name is so holy they would feel like they desecrate to even begin for a human to try to say the name of God. And many Orthodox people now, even if they're printed about God, Yahweh, in English, they, they'll, they'll leave out letters on purpose so that they're not even printing G-O-D. But now we're seeing Lord Yahweh Adonai, Yahweh, where we get, and Yahweh means Savior, salvation, where we, where it translates into Yahshua, Joshua, which means the Lord is our salvation, which Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua in Greek, which is Jesus. Are you following me? So now in chapter 2 of Genesis, we, not, we saw the Elohim, the Father in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we're seeing Yeshua, HaMashiach. We're seeing Jesus, the Christ. And then we roll into chapter 3, and I told you the Bible says uh, that the Lord would come. Elohim and Yahweh and Joshua would come. He would come and walk in the cool of the evening. And when you tell that to South Georgia people, they think, you know, the Lord's coming, you know, after the sun's starting to go down and it's the temperature has, you know, normalized. Man, they were living in Eden. They had nothing to do with nothing. And it's very poor translation, terrible translation, in fact, because the word cool is the word ruach, which it means spirit or wind or breath. So it said when God came, he walked in the ruach of the day. He walked in the wind or the spirit of the day. So in chapters 1, 2, and 3, in 1 we see Father. In chapter 2 we see the Son. And in chapter 3 we see the Spirit. And they're all three walking in the garden. We, we see that relationship, and so we, we have all three present. And so now when you visualize God walking in the cool of the day, I want you to see five people in the garden, not three. You have a plurality inside the oneness of God. There is a plurality inside the oneness of God. And don't let that fool you. I said the other night, my, the Bible says that me and my wife have been married now 42 years. And the Bible says me and that woman are one. Come here, you good-looking woman, you. I know you don't want to. You better get up here where they think you obey me when I holler. <laughs> Even though you don't. <laughs> How many people do y'all see? Bible says there's one. Bible says we're one. And yet you see two. You accept that? We're one? That's what it says. 
But there's two of us. Yet when, when God says no, there's one. So with God, it's not just two. It's not father, son, because that's dualism. And that would mean that, that they only love the other one. But when you introduce and you go beyond two, then you, you go into what's more, you, you got community there. Now you got community. See, 1 John chapter 5, New Testament, verse 7, 1 John 5 and 7 makes it extremely crystal clear. It says, for there are, how many? Three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. These three are one. One plus one plus one. You say it's three. There are three, but one plus one plus one equals one. To refer to God as any other than oneness is a disservice to, to, the, to the relationship that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have one with another. Uh, the fact that they are more than two means that that of the three, somebody loves the one that the other one loves. I said somebody loves the one that the other one loves. And so th th this understanding about God becomes, listen, the very basis of our being. We, we are designed by God for other-centered giving, sometimes sacrificially giving love, and we are designed by God for, for relationship and for community. And, and, and uh, this is the reason that this is so important, because if you only have one, then you have no basis for love or relationship. I'm going to say that again. If, if God has ever been isolated and just one, if, if God is just one, one being, one thing, then there is no basis for love because there's no one to love outside of himself. And there is no basis for relationship. And there is no basis for fellowship because there's nobody to fellowship with. And so if you don't have that picture of God, if you don't start out of the gate with that understanding and that image and that, that belief system of who God is, then you're going to have a hard time believing in the goodness of God because God is love, and for God to be love, he's got to have someone to love. And, and God's love, agape love, is, is, is not God-centered love, but it is other-centered love. And others are the object and the, the target of God's love. When Jesus girded himself with a towel at the Last Supper, and he began to wash the dirt off his disciples' feet, what, what do you think about that? You think God's doing something pious, something religious? You think he's putting on a show? You think he's fronting? He, he did that because that's who he is. God never has tried to be humble. God is humility. When he was born with the smell of animal manure in the air, in Bethlehem, with animals, he wasn't doing that to be, you know, I'm trying to trick them. We try to be, we want to trick them. That's who he is. All the, all the prophets and the scribes and the Pharisees that listened to the prophets and, and talked about the Messiah being born, they heard about it. We wouldn't even walk across town. They wouldn't even walk the two miles to, to see and check it out. Because they never dreamed of a God that was that humble. Now, if he'd have been born in the hallowed halls of a, of a synagogue, yeah, we'll come see but God is not religious. The, 
this understanding is the basis of our very existence. And, 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 and for us to, you got to see that the first thing we see in the Bible is God fellowshipping and, commun- and communion with his creation. That's how it starts. We long for this face-to-face relationship that exists in the Trinity. And that's why John is the first apostle, in my opinion, to really get this. It took him till he was an old man to get it. And he was in his 90s when he wrote, and the oldest book in the New Testament is not the book of Revelation. It is the book of John. It is the oldest chronologically time period written book in the Bible, in the New Testament, rather. And so John begins in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with. The word with, I've told you this often lately, is the Greek word pros, P-R-O-S. And it means to be turned face to face. So in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with Elohim. They were, they were face to face. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 3 said, of everything that's created, no, no things were made or created without Him. That includes me and you. And you were in Christ. You were crucified with him. And I've told you, God did not invent the cross. God did not create the cross. God did not uh, build a cross for his son to go on. Man did all of that. Suffering, pain, trauma, murder, all that comes from man. Fallen, darkened man. But God loves us so much, he climbed into our mess the most cruelest torture machine that man could even devise. And he did not create the cross, but he, he saw it coming. He anticipated it. And David prophesied about it 500 years before the Persians ever even invented it. And once the Persians invented this cruel killing machine, torture machine called the cross, Then the Romans perfected it. And God in Christ climbed on it and said, I love you this much. I'll go into your darkest hole to save you. And today, you wear it around your neck as jewelry. You put it on your rings. And you are glad to do it. It would be similar to someone putting a guillotine on jewelry or an electric chair or some other method of taking people's life and wearing that as jewelry. You would be flabbergasted if somebody would wear a guillotine or that chops people's heads off or or an electric chair. Or if they wore that as jewelry, you would think they'd be sick. But you think nothing now of seeing someone wear a cross, the most cruelest diabolical torture machine ever created because God has redeemed it and now for us it is a symbol of hope and it proves to us that our father will go to any length nothing is so dark no painful so painful that he will not crawl into it with us and rescue us from it that's who he is We desire that face-to-face relationship that we see in the Father, Son, and Spirit. And in fact, we are in that, and we are included in that, and that's why God will not act independently. And when, when the Word became flesh, John 1.14, and the Word became flesh, I always was amazed that it did not say the Word became human. Anthropos. It could have used the word anthropos, which means human. That the Word simply become human. We call it the incarnation, where he climbed into to flesh and became human. That's not what it says, nor is that what it means. It said, and the word became flesh. That is the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X, sarx. 
And you never hear the church say anything good about the flesh. Oh, I'm sorry for cussing you out. I was in the flesh, brother. Oh, I'm sorry for committing that adultery. I was in the flesh. I'm sorry for doing this. I was in the flesh. I'm sorry for losing my time. Oh, you know, resist the flesh, rebuke the flesh, crucify the flesh, all that. But that's what Jesus came. The word became flesh. The word became same flesh that Adam was now in, who looking out from that flesh now hid from Papa and had wrong thoughts about him. And he's hiding from him, and he's afraid of him. When just the day before, Papa, Father, Son, and Spirit came and walked with him. Who changed? What changed? Man started going to the tree of knowledge of good and evil instead of the tree of life. And man now decided that I'm God and I will decide what is good and what is evil. There was no evil in the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the sense that God created evil because no evil can come from God. For there is no darkness in him, neither is there a shadow of turning in him. He is light and pure light and pure love and pure goodness. And evil cannot find its origin in Father. And if you see evil, it did not originate with him, but in man. God did not make a devil. God did not create a devil. God did not make Satan. God created an archangel named Lucifer who led worship. And he rebelled and he fell to the earth. And with no power and no ability to do anything significant. Yet from his own position of darkness and hatred and hatred of Yahweh, he sees who has the power. He sees who has been created in the image of God. Therefore, he goes to him. And he uses deception and lies to convince Adam and Eve that God is not who he says he is. He is not good and he's holding back from you. And when you believe the lie, you empower the liar in your life. And at that moment, Satan was created. And who made Satan? None other than Adam. If God did not send Lucifer here with power and ability to do and have power, to, he didn't have any power. Any power Satan uses today is power that is given to him by man. You should not fear him. We long for that face-to-face -face intimacy with the Father that exists in that triune relationship. And we want that, that, that openness. See, I, I told you during the feast, I said, my, my God has changed my thoughts on something that I had said for years. I'm still growing. But I, uh, of course, when they sinned and they're hiding and they're trying to cover themselves with fig leaves, that's how silly religion looks, how temporary made-up man rules it. It's just ridiculous. And God comes and he asks two rhetorical questions. He first says, Adam, where are you? You don't think God knew? Of course he did. It was a rhetorical question. Adam, where are you? And he said, I, we were hiding from you because we were naked. We were afraid of you. And then God asked a second rhetorical question. Who told you you were naked? I always thought that was Satan, but I feel like Papa has said, no, it's not Satan, son. I'm the one just doing the talking. Satan ain't got nothing to do with this. It's just me and my kids. I'm the only one asking the questions. So I asked the first rhetorical question, Adam, where are you? The second rhetorical question was, who told you you were naked? And the answer is because God created them and it said they were both naked and unashamed. That's face-to-face -face relationship. Nothing to hide, no fronting, nothing. Secrets will kill you. And we will fight to the death to keep them secret. Because we think that if you know me really, you will not love me. You will not like me. Therefore, I put on the facade. I pretend to be what I'm not so that you will accept me, so that you will love me, so you will like me. God said, who told you you were naked? 
The answer was rhetorically, I told you you were naked and you didn't have to be ashamed of nothing. Now, who has tried to make you doubt the way that I made you? Now, instead of being open and transparent and, and, and nothing to hide, look at you, you're hiding now. You're fig leaving. You're, you're hiding because you're trying to protect yourself, trying to be your own savior. See, we want that authenticity. But in this culture now, predominantly, we have exchanged that for technology and for imagery. I'll take a picture of myself. We run it through 12 filters, and then we get it just right, and then we put out the picture that we try to make everybody believe that that was spontaneous, and look what a great mom I am. Look what a great dad I am. Look how much fun I'm having. Look how rich I am. Look how great I am. But you know when you hit post, that ain't really you. You don't want to talk to people. You'd rather text them because you don't want that face-to-face, because -face. if I can text, I can control it. I can control what's being said. But if I talk, you might throw a curve at me. So there I get to hide on my iPhone, because it's an iPhone. It's all about me. I. I'm in charge. I am in control. I decide how we shout. Or shall not communicate. I decide what you see or don't see of me. We got to be more like our Papa, face to face, no more secrets, open. It's so freeing when you do that. That's what God wants for you. You don't have to hide no more. You don't have to decide. There's life, and it's the tree of life. That's a person. That's Jesus, of course. I hope you know that. But you have to start with that understanding of who God is. Who is this God? He is three. He's one. But you're included. I thought they said something, you know, like, and, and so when Paul, Paul caught the glimpse as far as anybody after the 12 apostles, John saw it. John was late to the party to write about it, but the, the you know, apostle Paul, he got it. And, 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 and he began to speak. Actually, in 2 Corinthians 12, it says that he was called up and he's, and he's putting it in third tense. Like he said, I knew a man, you know, uh, 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I, I don't really know, but he was called up into the heavens, the third heaven. And he said he saw things there that was un, uh, unlawful for man to utter. I heard things, he said. He saw things. And what did he see? He saw God. He saw the, the grace of God. And it didn't mean it would be unlawful to say it. He just said, I don't have the language to try to describe to you what God showed me. And he was talking about himself. He, he was carried in a, in a vision, trance, whatever. He said, whether I was in the body, out of the body, I don't even know. It don't matter. But I, I, I was revealed things about the grace of God. And then Paul spent the rest of his life trying to speak that language, try to put vocabulary to that language and, and what he was taught. And it's, just, it's almost an impossibility to describe the goodness of God and the love of God. And he, he said it's, the, God's love is surpassing knowledge. It goes beyond man's ability to comprehend it. He said, I, I pray that you'll have a revelation of the love of God, though, that's in Christ Jesus. And he began to try to articulate that. And so, you know, and, and so our God is a happy God, and this is a happy gospel. But looking at the pews and the folks that sat on it and their countenance, you would not know that in many places. They look like they're very unhappy. And the reason they're unhappy because they're not speaking, they're speaking still old covenant language. And I was raised on, I, well, I was raised on songs like, Lord, I'm desperate for you. We're so desperate for you. That is, de you, won't you get your dictionary and look at what desperation means? God said you have received the fullness of God. God said you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing already in Christ Jesus. God said you've already been given the mind of God. God said you have received an anointing from the Holy One, and the Holy One himself indwells you. God said the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead uh, uh, dwelleth within you now. 
God says you have the mind of Christ. Don't pray for it. You got it. I'm desperate for you. I used to sing the fire out there because I saw God like Plato saw God. Distant, disinterested, most of the time unpleased with me, sometimes angry, and at times prone to violence. That was how Plato saw God. God is not a distant, angry God. He's got nothing to be angry with you about because he took away the sin of the world, which included yours. He promised in his covenant coming, and Isaiah the prophet saw it. God said, I was angry just for a moment, but this is like the waters of Noah unto me. And he said, this is my covenant that I make with you that is coming, this new covenant. He said, when it, this new covenant comes, he said, I will never be angry with you again, nor shall I ever remove my kindness from you. So any preacher, any person that portrays to you an image of an angry God, that's just called they angry. But God is not angry. And God don't get mad at people and God ain't judging people because of their sins. And he's not judging any nation because of their sin. And he's not sending, you know, hurricanes and tornadoes and floods. And he's not breaking people's legs to get their attention. And he doesn't give people cancer. And he doesn't put them in the hospital. And he doesn't let bad things happen to you. He doesn't do any of those things because that's not a loving father. That's the Godfather. The Godfather breaks legs. The Godfather shoots a few to get the other's attention and put fear in the camp. The Godfather does that, but not Father God doesn't. But that was the God that I was taught that would do those things. He would break bones. Oh, you're a little sheep. Now, if you stroll away, the good shepherd to grab your leg, break it. That way you won't get the, you know, run with the world and all. And he's really a good shepherd, even though that hurt like hell and your legs all broke up with pins in it. But, you know, God's a good God. Let's give him some praise, y'all. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, so stupid. I can't believe I bought into that stuff. You can do bad stuff and get yourself hurt and lay in the hospital and have time to read the Bible, but that wasn't because God was behind it. God's not the author of your pain. He's the author of your faith. And you need to know that about God because you can never believe in a God that is unpredictable and a God that does those type of things because that's not who he is. And we've all had a broken, flawed image of a loving father. And you, you hear the language, you know, of the old covenant. Well, you got to die to yourself. Die daily. How many heard all this stuff? Take up your cross daily. Well, I thought Jesus said that. He did say that before the cross. Never, nobody ever said it after the cross. The cross changed everything. People look at the Bible like it didn't want a big deal for Jesus to come. Before the cross, Jesus said, if you don't forgive your brother, their trespassers, neither will your heavenly father forgive you of yours. Preachers still get in the pulpit today because they don't know when the New Testament starts. And they preach that if you look out all in your heart against your brother and you don't forgive them, then God's not hearing your prayers. You're cut off and God don't hear you and you're not forgiven. And if the rapture happens, you're going to be left. <laughs> good news. I got good news for you. No wonder churches is empty. Who will serve a God? But after the cross... Nobody ever said those things because Jesus was preaching law to those that are under the law. That's what Galatians said. Jesus was, Jesus was born under the law to redeem those under the law, and he preached the law to them. Why? Because the law would shut their mouth for their boasting, and it would, cause, it would do what the law was designed to do, to kill them, stop their boasting, and trust in their need for a Savior. That's what, that's what the law was for. Schoolmaster brought you to Jesus. Wants to yell a bus cage and drops you out at school. You don't need to yell a bus the rest of the day. You good. The law just brought you to Jesus and put you out. They said, there he is. Run to him. <laughs> Amen. I love you guys. Stand to your feet. Thank you. It's a wonderful week. Just getting to hang out with God. I was surprised, though, how tired I got in my body. I feel like a wimp. Uh, you know, we just came to church like Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and you thought we was all, you know, been in some arduous marathon. It's like, God Almighty. I said, man, 
Anybody else felt tired of your body besides me? Maybe it's because I'm, you know, a little bit down the road. I don't want to say over the hill. I'm just down the road. I'm not over the hill. I'm down the road. <laughs> oh, praise God. Can I pray with you? I pray you believe in the God that I preach to you today. I pray that you know how much he loves you. And it is, it is a relentless love. He, he is relentless. He will not give up on you. He will pursue you. He will pursue you because he created you. You're his kid. He loves you. If you just believe in him, that's where life comes. As many as believed on him, to them he gave the privilege, the authority to be the sons of God. So, Father, I have gathered this, your precious people, at this appointed time. And we have come, and we have observed and talked about, and we have kept uh, this feast in our minds, and we have come and assembled before you. This is the eighth day. The, at number eight in your Bible means new beginnings. And I pray that, that someone today has a new beginning that began this day in their life. It's a new beginning of how they see you and therefore how they see themselves and then how they will see others. I pray for a new beginning in marriages and relationships. I pray that they see that they have never been alone. They've never been without you. You've always been pursuing them and help them to look back upon their life and see those moments when you were speaking to them and drawing them and protecting them. And I pray that, Father. I praise you for revealing to us the relationship that you, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, have with one another, how you have other-centered love for each other, sacrificial love for us, that nothing was too hard, no length too great, no pain too great that you would not crawl into our darkness to save us. The entrance of your word brings light and illumination, and I thank you for causing the darkness that, that blinded our minds so we could not believe be removed. God, keep illuminating our mind and our heart so that we may see you in the fullness of your glory and the grandiose, glorious relationship that you have with one another and with us and that you will not act independently and exclude us from those things that you are doing in this earth. We are glad to participate with you in what you're doing. And Father, I praise you for this feast and for this time of the year and for what it means on your calendar. And it is a prophetic declaration that you are so looking forward to the day that heaven comes to earth. Lord, I know we've been all taught that we're going up there, but us that have read your book see that you're coming here. That new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven to earth, and there shall you forever tabernacle with us and be with us. What a loving Father. Thank you for leaving heaven, the Word, and becoming Adamic flesh and crawling into Adam's darkness and yet saving us from our darkness. Thank you, Spirit of God, the gentle way that you comfort us, that you surround us, that you guide us and help us, that you are the spirit of truth. And you said, Holy Spirit, when you come, you would not speak of yourself. You're not a narcissist, but you would speak of him that sent you. And it's like your heart, Holy Spirit, is just to put the light on Jesus. And you love Jesus so much. And you won't talk about yourself, but you brag on Jesus. What a loving relationship. Let us be like that, Father. Help us to see that and to realize we are part of that circle, face-to-face -face relationship. Let us be face-to-face -face with one another. Let us not hide. Let us not hide in religion. Let us be open, unashamed, no secrets, no fear, for your perfect love has cast out all our fears. I bless you this day, my Papa. I thank you for loving us. Thank you for this 
being alive on earth when this revelation is coming, becoming so clear to us now. Thank you, Father, that I'm alive to see it and participate in it and be able to have the honor to preach it to your precious people. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Love you. See you next Sunday. Shake hands. Hug necks. <laughs>